The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. Uh, so I want to remind all of our men that are here that um, we are doing a men's conference the first weekend of February. And uh, so you can go to the Hub on the Church website and sign up for that. Um, if you're, we generally would say the guys that are junior age in high school and above or could go to that. So get signed up for that um, as soon as possible. And then also want to remind everyone that we are doing a New Year's worship night, January 15th at 6.30 here at the church, and uh, just a way for us to kick off the new year with some prayer, worship, and just being together, and uh, so we invite you to come out for that. Um, I believe it's going to be here. Anyone is going to be in the Creekside or in this building? I guess in this building here, so we'll, um, we'll clarify that, but 6.30 on the 15th of January on a Sunday evening. So happy new year to you all. If one of your resolutions was to attend church, congratulations. You've reached your goal. And we're only a few hours into the new year. Um, so full, dis- uh, full disclosure, um, my, uh, my family had the flu kind of going around with them over the holiday, and I thought I steered clear. But at 11 o'clock last night, a uh, fever began to spike. And so, uh, so I don't really feel that bad necessarily, but um, I, I don't think I slept for one minute last night. And so... There's no telling what I will say in this sermon. I could really get away with a lot today. Uh, So anyway, it's a good thing we're doing one service today, I think. Um, I may start sweating up here like a TV preacher, just to warn you. That may happen. Um, But back in 2004, my wife and I moved to Temple, and we came here uh, for me to take the job at TBC as the junior high pastor. And... uh, and we just got into town. I think it was January we moved here. And um, about three weeks into us being here, there was a, like a, not a big snowstorm, not like Snowmageddon, but it was a decent-sized snowstorm when we first got here. And someone had decided, graciously given us an apartment to stay in for about two months before we got into a house. And uh, we were so thankful for that. And we're in this apartment, and we never had a fireplace in the apartment before. And it was just like, we have have a nice fireplace. This is really cool and awesome. And uh, so one night, um, after the snowstorm uh, came through, we decided we're going to have this really cool, cozy night, you know, have the fire and watch a movie together and all the, and, and then, and, and so we, we, we get the movie because we had to go to a, a store for that back then. And, and we put the DVD in and we're watching this film. We turn the lights off and we're just going to watch this, this movie, right? And, um, and the fire's going and it's this idyllic evening, right? And then I'm sitting on the couch and I start to smell something. And I start to say to Courtney, I said, well, do you smell, does it smell like something, like some kind of fuel? And, uh, and she says, yeah, it kind of does. So we turn the lights on and we realize we had forgotten to open up the chimney. And so all the smoke is just coming into the apartment and we couldn't see it because the lights are out, right? And, uh, and so now our idyllic evening has turned into chaos and I, I go find a fire extinguisher and, and, and I blow out like the, the fire in the fireplace and now there's like that chalky dust in the entire apartment. And then um, I now have to, the thing is still burning, so I now have to get tongs and like pick it up, the, the log, 
and go to the, the, the uh, little balcony outside and like dump it out the balcony into the snow on the second floor. And, uh, and now we have like smoke in the apartment. It's just crazy chaos. Uh, we have neighbors that are realizing what's happening. We're having to open up all the windows, all the doors and air the place out. And everyone's helping us out with fans. And, and so we had this, we had this plan. We had this plan, but the end result wasn't how we imagined it. Our plan turned into chaos. And so today we're going to look at a story in the scriptures in Genesis chapter 11, where the people, they kind of had this idyllic plan, this ideal that they had in their mind of what they're going to do, but it didn't go as planned, ends up turning into chaos. And since it's New Year's, I thought it'd be appropriate to talk about the Tower of Babel. Now, how many of you all think we should pronounce that Babel? Raise your hand. How many say Babel? Raise your hand. I think the Babels have it. I think we're going to go with Babel. This is like a choose-your-own-adventure sermon, okay? We're going (laughs) to let you guys decide some things as we go. So we're going to go with Tower of Babel, and we're going to read Genesis chapter 11. Go ahead and turn there, verses 1 through 9. We're going to read it all at one time, and then we'll come back and go through it bit by bit. So in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and they are confused their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech." So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, at first glance, we might ask, I mean, their intention seems kind of benign, right? Like they're just going to build a city, and they're going to build a tower. So what's wrong with them building a city and a tower in this way? Isn't that a display of unity and people working together? Well, if you go back in Genesis, God gives this command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Well, how do they do with that? Well, not very well, at least initially, because after they sinned and God expels them out of the garden, Their son, Cain, kills their other son, Abel. That is a murder rate of 25%. That that is not multiplying and filling the earth. That is population regression. And as time goes on, corruption begins to increase on the earth. And so God brings about this judgment through the flood, but of course preserves Noah's family in the ark. And then after the flood, God gives Noah's family the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 9, 7, we read, And you be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth 
and multiply in it. So God gives Noah and his family the same command that he gave to Adam and Eve. And then if you go down to Genesis chapter 10, we're going to see the nations that are descending from Noah's sons. And after each son is listed with their genealogy, we see this key phrase three different times. In 10.5, we see, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. And then 10.20, it says, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then 10.31, it says, these are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, and their nations. Now, what do you notice? You notice it says they, they seem to have different languages in Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis 10, it looks like the people are on the move. If you go back and read that chapter, it looks like they are fulfilling God's command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But there's this reference three different times of them speaking different languages back in chapter 10. So it's confusing when we get to chapter 11 and we see that everyone's speaking the same language. So what's going on here? Well, there's a little clue in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, concerning a descendant of Shem. It says, to to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So this guy Eber would have been the ancestor to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many believe that we can't we can't see Genesis 10 and 11 as chronological, like one after the other. But here in verse 25, we, we see reference to the earth being divided. And then in chapter 11, I believe what's happening is in chapter 11 is, is explaining how that came about. So Genesis 11 is kind of like a parenthesis to Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, and it's not meant to be chronological. So back to our question, what is the sin in building a city and a tower? Well, they refused to obey God's command because God said, you're going to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there was this one people group that decided to slow down and say, no, 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 we're going to stop right here. And we're going to set up a city and a tower and we're going to do it how we want to do it. And instead of destroying them with another flood, because God promised he would never do that again, God just decides to come down and just kind of mess with them. And he wants to disperse them. So let's let's look more closely at what went wrong here. The outline I'm taking, you'll see on the screen, is from a guy named Kurt uh, Strasner. And first we see rebellion in Genesis 11, 1 through 3, where it says, now the whole earth had one language, and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So we can't like underestimate the fact that this is an advancement of technology. Of course, we we see things being built and constructed all the time. So we don't think about the importance of this Uh, technological advancement that they have, they can now make bricks. Because before this advancement for them, they had to just take stones. And as you know, stones can be a little bit cumbersome. 
Stones can be heavier. And you've got to shape the stone. You have to make sure the stones fit with other stones. And they don't always fit together the right way. And so it's harder for people to take just stones and build something that goes up, 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 and up. And now they've discovered how to mass produce bricks. And this was much quicker. And now they can just go higher and higher and higher. And what we see here is that as technology begins to advance for these people, it it leads to a form of pride. I think just like today. Now listen, I'm not anti-technology. But we have to admit that with every advancement that we see, there is a temptation for mankind to become more autonomous, more independent, have the attitude towards God that we don't even need him. We no longer need him. And we see this happen here in the story. And so technology kind of has this way of making us feel prideful about what we've created, what we've designed, and like today, making us forget our need for God. So how do we struggle with that today? I think we can think of many ways that we struggle with that today in our own lives. So God commands these people to spread out and to, to fill the earth, but instead they, they rebel, they go their own way. They did what was convenient instead of what God commanded them to do. And I think we fall prey to the same ideas because many of us fall into the thinking, things like this, God, you know, God isn't saying what it looks like he's saying. Or, you know, God will understand if I, you know, bend the rules just a little, you know, given our cultural situation, you know, God's commands can't be taken literally. And we all do this kind of thing, this kind of thing. We embrace convenience over what God has commanded. And that's what they're doing here. We're going to see that from this story that our sin has multiple layers to it. And we see that with ourselves. There is an outer layer and there's an inner layer. And you see here in the story that this outer layer meets a practical need. Because why would they feel the need to build a city and gather themselves together? Well, of course, there's strength in numbers. The idea of being dispersed over the land. Maybe you're more isolated. You're more prone to encountering danger and someone trying to take your life. So if they band together, there is a feeling of, of safety and security in their actions. Their strength in numbers and they'd feel safer and more secure. And so there is an element of sin where sin always feels safer than obedience. And our sin almost always meets some practical need. If it didn't, I don't think we would do it. There is almost always a, a practical need being met when you and I fall into sin or temptation. So these people, they, they rebel against what God wants them to do. And then if you look at verse 4, it says, then they, said, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they at least seem to understand that if we don't build the city and the tower, where we're going to be spread all over the world, like God is asking us to do. And so... And, of course, they don't want that for themselves. So sin always has this outer layer, meeting a practical need for us. But there's also this inner layer, trying to meet this inner spiritual need that we might identify. 
So the statement that jumps out to me here is, it's let us make a name for ourselves. So they're seeking, they're seeking renown and reputation and self-promotion. In a sense, as they're building the tower, they are building themselves. And this is where I think the story fits in with New Year's because as we decide, many of us, you're making decisions about, I've got to make some decisions. I've got to cut some things out and start some new habits this, this time of year especially. But the question we have to wrestle with is, are we seeking to make a name for ourselves? How often do we examine our motives as we make changes, of course, in our lives? You know, self-promotion is the air that we breathe in our culture today. You know, I've got to build, I've got to build my brand, right? And we all struggle with that. Reminded of a quote, an old quote from now an old artist, Madonna. She says this. She says, I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I'm always fascinated by people that you know, aren't believers that I know of, and, and yet they had this great insight into the human condition. There is surprising honesty and insight from someone who's been at the top and realize when you get there, there is something that's still missing in that. There is this, this like gnawing and aching that wants to make a name for ourselves. And we all struggle with that. And sometimes I think we can justify it by saying, well, you know, look at, look at the quality of work it produces. You know, at least it's serving a good purpose. I mean, someone like her could say, well, look at the art that I've created and even though it's come from maybe a place of insecurity and anxiety, look what has been accomplished as a result of my, the place that I find myself in. But I don't know about you, but every year, I get just a little bit anxious around this time of year because you've gone through all the holiday season stuff and, um, and, and we're always evaluating and trying to think of like, what are some ways I, I should live differently this coming year, of course, and how can I resolve to live differently in this new year? But, the, but again, the question is, how often do I look at my motives and what's motivating some of those things? Now listen, I don't mean to kill ambition. That's not my goal today. But having a time of refocusing and rededication at this time of the year, I think is a good thing. You know, some may not be aware of this, but in the church calendar, we just went through a month or five weeks of Advent. In the church calendar, the new year, Advent is followed by what's called Epiphany. And this was in the church calendar, a time of of, of celebration and, and rededication and declaration. And I think it's good for us to resolve to live differently, you know, to cut out some unhealthy habits and start some new ones. But the question we have to ask ourselves is which story are we living from? Is it the story that God invites us into or is it the story the world offers to us, the stories of materialism, consumerism, romanticism, 
Which story are we living from? These are the stories that say we can, you know, be better or feel better if we just apply ourselves or try harder. But the story of Babel, I think, forces us to look a bit deeper into our motives and, and question those motives sometimes, I think, in a biblical way. Now, this tower that they're constructing would have been what was called a, a ziggurat with a Z, and this was common in that area. And this would have been a large structure with, with stairs to a temple or a shrine up on top. And many believe that it was something along these lines, like a ziggurat or a place of worship. And there are some people who point to archaeological evidence for this place being built. So even the Smithsonian, which is not a Christian institution, last time I checked, they say there's great evidence for a tower like this being constructed. And some believe that after God dispersed the people and, that, and, w- and when construction stopped, that many years later, some believe that Nebuchadnezzar II came along and took the construction further of this particular tower and completed that construction. So not to be confused, Nebuchadnezzar came much later, and Genesis, of course, is much earlier, but there are some people that work for the Smithsonian that believe that Nebuchadnezzar II came along and took this tower, this project, and brought it maybe to completion or at least further the project in that area of the world. And they believe this because there was a tablet that was found. Not sure where this was located. It's hard for you to see the details on that, but I'll show a slide in a second that shows more detail. But you see kind of on the left side this kind of stair-step-looking tower that goes up. And on the right, you see the figure of a man who's facing the tower. And they believe that this tablet was a picture of Nebuchadnezzar as he looks at this tower that he ends up completing many years later after the story in in Genesis chapter 11. And here's the second picture as they've kind of filled in some of the lines of what they believe this tablet was was trying to show. And, um, And the reason why they believe that this is linked to this tower because there is an inscription on this tablet that says this. The base I filled in to make a high terrace, I built their structures with bitumen and baked brick brick throughout. I completed it, raising its top to the heaven, making it gleam bright as the sun. When you see the words that are inscribed on the tablet, they're very close to what's in the Bible story as we look at this story. So there is, of course, there is some archaeological evidence held by non-believers Um, for this taking place, but how else do we know what happened? Because we can look at the archaeological stuff, but we know what happened because we still see it happening today. When I think of, when you look at just the state of humanity, we like to build tall things. We revel in that. We pride ourselves in being able to take the things that the earth produces Every tower that we see, this is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, right now the tallest building in the world at 2,700 feet, and everything that you see in that picture came out of the earth. Just wrap your mind around that for a moment. That mankind, we have this way of, of mining things out of the earth and getting things from the earth and, and building these towers to the sky to proclaim how great we are. And of course, 
in a city also in the Middle East, there's a, a Jeddah tower being built, and it's not completed yet. This is an artist's rendering. I think it's going to be in Saudi Arabia. And it's supposed to be 500 feet taller because, you know, they will not be outdone, right? So there's this thing in humanity that says we've got to build something and make a name for ourselves. And we attach our, we attach our identity to the things that we accomplish. We do it corporately. We also do it, of course, individually. And so in Genesis chapter 11, we see this really important idea that as they are building this tower, they're building themselves. And they see it as their identity. In verse 5, look at Genesis 11, verse 5, where it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And they're confused their language. So they may not understand one another's speech. So there is some irony here because they build this tower to, to reach into the heavens, to get closer to the gods as they worship those gods. But then look what, look what don't miss it, look what God has to do. He has to come down. He has to step down to see it. So let me get out my magnifying glass. You know, this is cute. I see what you did here. You know, humanity is playing in the dirt again. And I've got to come down just to be able to see it. You know, it's amazing, you know, mankind getting prideful about what he made from the dirt. So meanwhile, the one who makes us from dirt is having to come down just to have a look at this tower. So we just spent five weeks talking about Jesus, of course, coming down to earth. But this is a different kind of coming down. And again, we might say, you know, I thought that unity was a good thing. What's wrong with this project? Well, it depends on what we're unified around. Because gangs and mobs are unified. They've got a cause so God knows they're unified around this idea of let's make a name for ourselves. And on the surface, it might seem, you know, kind of benign and like not a big deal, but God knows their hearts and he knows where this thing is going to go. And he knows they're unified around making a name for themselves. And it's not the height of the buildings that he's worried about, but it's the depths to which their sin may go. And God knows about that. So God decides to act, and it's a, it's a judgment, but there's also, we also see grace at work here because he's keeping them from evil. Just understand what's happening here is that God is stepping in to restrain them and keep them from committing great evil. You know, we get concerned about, you know, why God allows evil, but have we ever considered the times that God may have restrained evil? ways in which we know nothing about? Have we realized that about ourselves? Have we thought about the times that if God had not restrained our own hearts, what we might be capable of? And so in his grace, God restrains. And we see that here. And then look at verse eight. It says, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city 
And therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now, we aren't sure, I'm not sure how this took place, this whole chaotic scene. You know, it reminds me of a a few months ago, our students were doing a game night down at the Outback, and one of the games that TJ had them play was he assigned everybody a certain animal, kind of animal. And he said, you have to make the noise of the animal that you are and then find your people. Find people that are like, that are like you. And so everyone's running around the outback like making these crazy animal noises trying to find their people, right? And they have to group together. And so I don't know if it happened like that where you're running around trying to figure out like who's speaking my language or if God had a way of keeping the families, of course, together. I'm not sure how this took place. But God goes down and he confuses their languages, and he causes them to disperse. So I want you to understand something here. What they, what they most feared, which was being dispersed, is what comes upon them. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what they would not do in obedience, God does for them in judgment. You see, they want to make a name for themselves, and now they can't even pronounce one another's names as he confuses the language among them. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 10, verse 24, where it says, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. You know, sometimes in our pride, we have a way of trying to grab hold of life or grab hold of something, trying to prevent our worst fears. And we all do that. But then sometimes God gives us what we most fear. If we make plans without him at the center, he allows our plans to fail. And that's really an act of his grace because he's giving us a chance to repent. And we see his grace at work here in the story. And again, it's not that we are are trying to, to kill ambition and we don't make plans. It's not that we do that. But we got to keep these things in mind as we, there's a couple of Proverbs I want to show you. Proverbs 16.3 and 16.9 where it says, Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. And the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So it's not that we, we sit on our hands and do nothing, but we, of course, commit our work to him through prayer and God can give us the clarity and confidence in that to move forward with whatever he's called us to do. But if you read, go back and read Proverbs 16, the writer focuses on this important connection between our heart and our actions. You know, sometimes you and I just get caught up in just just doing stuff, making plans, but ignoring the posture of our hearts. This has especially convicted me over the last several months because whenever we enter into a new year, we are never more aware of the passage of time whenever a new year hits, right? You know, we mark it intentionally with, with the calendar, with years and with months and with days. And, and sometimes, I, I know you're with me on this, it, it just feels like things are going by at warp speed. And over the last few months, I've been really personally convicted about how I steward my time and the resources that God has given to me. So I've been reading like book after book on 
how to make better use of time, how to be more efficient, and those can be good things. Listen, if you give me a book on time management, I'll probably read it if I can find the time to do it, right? But as we seek to become more efficient, sometimes we ignore the posture that our heart is in. You know, later this year, we're going to do a series on the spiritual disciplines, I think in the fall. But listen, these are not things that we can just simply tack onto our lives. We can't just, you know, just carve out the half hour or the hour, but then have the rest of our life look the exact same as it always has. Like it's not going to take. It's like many of you all are going to be doing, many of us are going to be doing You're thinking of like physical fitness as the new year rolls around. And listen, if you carve out that half hour a day, that's great. But if the rest of our life looks the exact same, it's not going to take. And the same is true for the spiritual disciplines. So there's no way for the disciplines to impact our heart if the rest of our life looks how it always does. So just think about the most common response that you and I have when someone asks you, you haven't seen them in a while, and they say, you know, how are you doing? What's your response usually? Just crazy busy, right? Just been busy. Just crazy busy. So what if, what if your New Year's resolution was simply to have that not be your response this year? <laughs> There's a quote from a book I read recently by Kevin DeYoung. He says, busyness does not mean you're a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means you're busy, just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. Uh, Many of you all know that we went to Israel back in May and June um, with about 35 people here at TBC. And many of you also know, we told the story already about how um, several of us got COVID over there and had to stay back a few extra days. And so my wife and I and some others had to stay back. And, and we got like a little apartment in the western part of Jerusalem that was fairly close to what we needed to have, uh, grocery stores and whatnot, for about nine days. And, and I will say it was very interesting going from this like fast-paced trip for about 12 or 13 days where you are getting up at 6.30 every morning and you're out the door by 8 and you're just go, 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 go every single day and just seeing all these things and it's taking all this information in and then suddenly it just stops and now you have COVID and now you got to go sit in an apartment for a few days and just, just be. Let's just go sit now for a bit. And it's interesting because I was there in that part of Jerusalem and this is this Jewish section of Jerusalem and we go for these walks. Now listen, we're being careful. Don't judge me, all right? But we're walking the streets out. We're walking sometimes out at night and just trying to get some fresh air. And my wife, she just had to feed all the cats in all of Jerusalem. Like she, it's like a calling God's placed on her life, right, to do those things. And, and I love her for that. Um, so we're taking these walks at night. And especially on what they call Shabbat, which is Sabbath, which is for them, it's Friday from 4 p.m. until sometime on Saturday evening. And it really was amazing just seeing that firsthand, like how they just slow down and just taking walks on their Sabbath. And what's crazy is 
around 4 p.m. is when all the stores close on Friday. And so everyone, it's like a madhouse. You go into a store and it's like just crazy madhouse in the store up to 4 p.m. on Friday. Then everything just stops. There's no, no taxis. There's no, you can't go anywhere. You can't go buy anything. You can't even go, like we have those 24-7 clinics. Like they don't have those. It's like 24-6. They close. And it's just amazing. We're walking around at night on the Sabbath, and we're seeing families out, and they're, they're pushing strollers, and they're talking, and I saw not one person on their phone. Like, they put that away on the Sabbath. And then they go out, and they go to, of course, their synagogue, and then they, you hear them at night as we're walking through the streets. We, we hear, we can, we can hear people in apartments with their windows open, like eating and talking and laughing and being together. And it was just hugely convicting for us to think that we rarely do that. We rarely just stop and slow down and rest in the way that God wants us to rest. And this is the change I think we have to begin to make if the things we're going to discuss later in the fall are really going to take and really going to have an impact Another guy I've read some recently, a guy named Kerry uh, Newhoff, he says this, you tell yourself it's a busy season, but if your busy season has no ending, it's not a season, it's your life. So before we even talk about the disciplines, we've got to be able to carve out some sacred space in our lives so our hearts can be in this place of rest, so it can be receptive to what God wants to do in us. Now, if you continue, if you go back to the story, if you continue reading in Genesis chapter 11, the genealogy, it it focuses on Noah's son, Shem. And it was through his line that Abraham was born, and then, of course, Isaac and Jacob, and then all of Israel, and then, of course, Jesus. So from this this mess and chaos of, of Babel, God, in his grace, begins to set aside a people through whom the Messiah is going to come. And then, of course, if you go to the New Testament in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, go back and read that, that section of Scripture, you will see how these people that speak different languages, they're coming together, and they're now able to hear the gospel message in their own language. God reverses what takes place at the Tower of Babel. But if you read on in Acts chapter 17, where Paul is now in Athens on Mars Hill, Paul says this in his sermon on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. It says, and he made from one, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him. And find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So, for those that are building this tower, the Tower of Babel, God, God seems so far away to them. And they believe they had to exert all this effort, pour all this blood, sweat, and tears into building this tower to reach the gods. But here in Acts chapter 17, Paul reminds us, you know, he's not that far away. He's not that far away. 
So what will you build in 2023? What story will be at the center of your plans? The story the world sells us, making a name for ourselves? Or will it be a different story, the gospel story, with Christ at the center? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it shapes us. We thank you for how even a story like this, this crazy story of people that desire to take their life into their own hands in the name of safety and security, setting aside your commands and deciding to listen only to themselves. God, we thank you for how that story points out in our lives the ways in which we do the exact same thing. God, we pray that um, as we enter into this new year, we pray that you would convict us, that you would grow us, you would transform us. God, we pray that we don't just tack new things onto our life externally, but God, that you would give us a desire and a passion to grow on the inside at a heart level and grow in such a way that only you can bring it about. Grow in such a way that only you can accomplish it. We pray you do that in us and through us this year, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.